0: This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. We're continuing our discussion with Dr. Joanna Davidovich. She is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa and a senior fellow at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. She also holds an appointment with the College of Law's Center for Human Rights at the University of Iowa, and she is the chief ethics officer at Babel AI, a company that audits and certifies AI systems. Welcome, Yovana, back to Radio Stockdale.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: Let's talk about data analytics and how it can inform a teacher as to the relative quality of a student's work. How does that work?
1: So AI can analyze uh, large volumes of educational data and and use that to basically identify trends in student performance, student engagement, uh, just overall sort of student experience. And then educators can obviously use this information to make data-driven decisions, better decisions, because they have more information. Um, And so some of the information that they might have is identifying struggling students and then maybe mentoring those students or implementing other types of interventions and improving curriculum uh, design. Uh, One of the things that's really important to understand about data analytics is that it's as good as people who use it. And what that means is that, you know, it really matters greatly how we use data analytics. So, for example, imagine you had a data analytics or a machine learning program that identifies um, student success. So whether or not a student is likely to succeed in your class or whether or not student is succeeding in your class. It greatly depends what you're going to do with that. If what you're going to do with that is, let's say, mentor that student, um, the sort of worries about potentially identifying some students as potentially not succeeding, who would have succeeded, is not a big deal. So basically making a mistake about who's struggling and who's likely to succeed. Or not is not a big deal. But imagine, and some institutions have done this using data analytics and machine learning algorithms for student success to identify students that they would not admit into their program or they d- didn't think were ready for certain t- types of courses. Um, so you can imagine there wrongly identifying a student as not ready to start a course or not likely to succeed in your institution could be a significant problem. So. Data analytics, a super powerful tool we can do, we can use to identify struggling students. And then, you know, what we do with that is really important for whether or not we're justified in using uh, data analytics.
0: Let me dive into that a little bit more, because what I'm hearing you say is that a student, let's say a seventh grader or a little Timmy or Tommy, may not be understanding algebra or French or whatever in that grade level. There could be a lot of factors for that. But sometimes the educational system, we might actually discard, Timmy. I hate to use that word, but because we assess that he may not be X, Y, or Z, we give up on him. And you're concerned that AI actually might help you give up on him.
1: Well, that's exactly right. So if you are using an algorithm to project, let's say, or to identify whether or not you know, Timmy or Tommy is likely to do well, let's say in algebra two, given how they performed in algebra one, which you're measuring is not simply Timmy's or Tommy's, you know, basic intellect, you're also measuring, you know, did he have extra tutoring at home? Uh, What's his situation at home? Does he have a quiet place to study? Very often are are, are data analytics that are trying to measure whether somebody is succeeding or not are rightly, because they're so powerful, capturing all the things that affect somebody's performance. And those things are socioeconomic in addition to curricular and how good your teacher is and basic ability of a student. And so, and that's good. That's not a bad thing. It's just that we have to, when we look at that data, we have to look at it holistically. We have to understand that a good algorithm or a good uh, data analytics tool is when it's working well, measuring all sorts of things. It's not just measuring somebody's innate ability. It's not just measuring my curriculum as a teacher. It's not just measuring you know, their performance on exams. It's also measuring whether my institution is a good institution. Maybe my institution hasn't been supporting Timmy. It's also measuring whether, again, Timmy, Timmy comes from a particular socioeconomic background that makes it really hard for him to perform at his best. And so it's just important that when we do measure these things, we just use it for the right sort of stuff, like mentoring, rather than for things like, well, let's you know let's not let Timmy go to the you know uh, advanced, let's say, math, which then of course has all sorts of effects on his ability to get into college one day, to get into advanced AP courses in high school, and so on.
0: You know, I like your idea about holistic approach to this thing. We've got to be smart about how we use AI going forward. You've talked about the pros of using artificial intelligence in education, but there are some cons in educational use also, pretty big cons. Tell me a little bit about what your sense is of those cons.
1: So there's a number of things people have been discussing um, as potential worries about the use of algorithms. One is, in education in particular, one is, of course, bias. Another one is opacity of algorithms, not really understanding what the algorithms are sort of telling us. Uh, A third one is issues about privacy and personal data. The sort of data that powers these algorithms comes from personal information about often students. Um, And another one is issues about equitable access. So that's just a a subset of, of sort of key issues that have been on people's minds around potential worries around the use of AI in education.
0: So let's talk about bias. And we're not necessarily talking about socioeconomic bias. It might be there but we're talking about algorithmic bias. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that's that's exactly the key point here. Some of the biases that we see in uh outputs of our algorithms, let's say biases that, you know, are more likely to identify, you know, girls as struggling in school or biases, you know, or algorithms that are more likely to identify uh people of color as underperforming in school or something like that. Those sorts of biases could be tracking and often do track socioeconomic biases in our society. But then there are straight up algorithmic biases. We make design choices when we build algorithms. Design choices about what we want that algorithm to optimize for. What is it after? Um, And those design choices can also introduce algorithmic bias uh which is not about the socioeconomic bias it's straight up about the biases we as designers or developers chose to implement in our algorithm um and then of course very often those those types of biases the socioeconomic ones or just uh and the ones that come from the development the ones that are truly technical biases very often merge in unique and funky ways to create sort of a extra, you know, emerging biases that combine both. But, I mean, going back to the student success algorithm example that I gave you, as I said, our outputs, if you had an algorithm that identifies somebody is likely to succeed, let's say in our institution, that algorithm is going to capture some socioeconomic uh, biases from our society. The examples I gave, students who don't have a quiet place to study, students who, whose parents don't have money to pay for tutoring. I mean, study of the study shows that SAT scores over 1300, for example, um, there's only 1% of kids in the lower 50% uh, socioeconomically that perform over 1300 on SATs. Uh, in the top 1%, so par- uh, kids whose parents earn over one are in the top 1% of earners, uh, close to 30% of kids Get over 1300 SATs. That clearly tells me something about what SAT is measuring. It's measuring not innate ability, it's also measuring things like I had tutoring, I was able to get an SAT um, prep course or something like that. So, our student success algorithms are going to do the same. So, that's one type of bias that. That might emerge in an algorithm. Others emerge, you know. For example, proctoring algorithms that need to detect a face as they're proctoring somebody taking an exam or certification, they might struggle with, in particular, women of color, but also in general, struggle with people of color. And so you might have those sort of. Those are pretty technical. It depends on the sort of data we gave the algorithm and how well we trained it. And so there's a range of different types of bias, different type of biases that emerge in uh, educational technology that we just need to be aware of. And there are many ways to mitigate that.
0: Bias seems to be a big deal. How do we mitigate that? Or can we even do that?
1: There's a, a great number of scholars working on how to mitigate bias. And there are some excellent techniques to mitigate bias uh, in AI. And I, I'm not going to go into great detail in, in all of them, but um, one of them is to just uh, so-called control distortion. So we just change the training data. So the training data reflects the world as it is. But we can, when we're building the training data, when we're labeling things, we can make the world look like it should have. So imagine our banks consistently turn down Hispanic applicants. We can say it didn't, right? So we can give our algorithm as we're building it, not examples of the way the world is, but examples of the way that we think the world should have been. And so that's one way to mitigate uh, uh, some of the bias. Another one is just when we're building the model and we're training our algorithm, instead of just optimizing for getting, you know, an accurate, getting accurate about uh, who's going to succeed, we can make sure that not only is it accurate, but it's accurate equally across various gender groups or racial groups or religious groups or ethnic groups. So we can optimize for more than one thing. Accuracy doesn't have to be the only thing we optimize for. We can make sure that our error rates are the same for various groups, right? And then the third obvious thing is let's just educate people. Any educator who's aware of these biases is going to be such a better user than an educator who's not aware of these biases. And those are just three uh, different ways in data data, uh, building or data collection, model building, and use. That will help us try to mitigate some of these biases and get the most out of AI because AI can really help us. We just have to make sure to mitigate some of these worries.
0: Okay, let's stay with this. You know, when I was growing up, the data said all doctors were male, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's what we see, and you know, a lot of our AI that's meant to diagnose things. Not only were a lot of our doctors male, uh, but also. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the data we have about patients is about white men. And so a lot of our medical diagnostic AI works much better for white men than it does for any other group. And so the the it's the responsibility of everyone in the so-called product chain, I think. So the developers are, need to be aware of bias. They need to make sure that data is good data. The developers also need to make sure that they're optimizing for the right thing, that they're making sure that they're not just optimizing for accuracy. They're also optimizing for accuracy, again, across various uh, groups. And then, of course, those of us who use it hold the responsibility to use it with awareness of these issues and then try to mitigate those issues. Simply put, you know, if I know as an educator or administrator that a student success algorithm measures all those things I've been talking about, measures not just students' abilities, but also measures their background, then... I, am, I should be confident in using this algorithm ethically for mentoring, for deciding to give the student a mentor, I should probably not be using this algorithm for deciding who should come into my university and who shouldn't, right? And so I think across the life chain, the life cycle of algorithms, there are responsibilities of developers, responsibilities of procurers, and then responsibilities of users.
0: So there's this concept called opacity. Can we talk about that?
1: Yeah, so very often the reasons we don't know whether our algorithm, let's say, is biased or whether it's making a wrong decision is because we don't really know how it works. So there's been a lot of calls for transparency of algorithms. Algorithms, especially really sophisticated neural networks and deep learning neural networks, uh, are extremely opaque. They're sort of black box. We have no idea, even if we know that they perform really well, Like in 85% of cases or 95% of cases, they give us the right answer. We don't know why they gave us that answer. And very often that matters. It matters because we want to make sure that they're not biased. We want to make sure, for example, that they're not using gender as one of its key variables. Or we want to make sure that they're not using data that it shouldn't be using. Maybe some personal data that it's not allowed to use. Or if things go wrong, we want to know why it went wrong and how can we make sure things don't go wrong again. All of those things, so remedies of bias, assuring privacy, and assuring the mistakes don't happen again, require some level of understanding of how algorithms work. And so there has been a huge call for transparency um, and explainability. So not just that we can look into the sort of technical aspects of the algorithm, that we can sort of understand, translate that techie stuff into language and concepts that make sense to us, the users. Um, you know, it's very often trust comes from understanding why some decision was made. And if I, as a professor, have no idea why the algorithm is telling me the student is going to fail or the student is cheating or whatever, you know, I probably should not trust it. And so transparency and explainability are very important for trust, and they're important for mitigating things like bias, privacy issues, and potential mistakes.
0: Okay, let's let's jump into the privacy thing. I mean, for instance, I like jazz. But should the fact that I like jazz be known to the machine from a privacy standpoint? Should the world know that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, commonly, that's exactly how we think of privacy. We think of privacy as you having the right to control information about yourself within reason, right? So if you're walking on the street, I can I know information about your height or something like that. But usually we think of privacy as your ability to control information about yourself, especially sensitive information. And these algorithms that we're talking about are powerful because they have massive amounts of data about student behavior uh, and about students themselves, both data that is familiar to us, information about where they're from or how they performed in classes before, how do they learn, but also sort of emergent data, the most powerful of these algorithms have information about us that we might not even have. They might know our preferences that we're not even consciously aware of. And so there's genuine worries about both privacy around personal information and also privacy around sort of preferences and behaviors and values that we might have that we're not even, again, consciously aware of. I want to say that students, at least my students, are very cognizant of this issue. They seem to be, for example, much more worried about this issue than, let's say, issues of transparency. I think the two issues that an average student is most worried about are bias and privacy.
0: So this final thing, equitable access, and what I'm really talking about here is the fact that not everyone has the ability to either use the algorithms or the data has been set based on their histories. Let's talk about equitable access and how that affects education.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we already captured some of the issues about equitable access that some of our algorithms and data analytic tools that are measuring student success, for example, might be just measuring access to tutors. But the alternative worry, let's say the privacy worry, is that actually underprivileged kids are much more likely to be exposed to privacy uh, uh, violations. For example, uh, at least in the school system where my kids go to, every kid is issued a laptop. Um, And then children who come from privileged homes tend to have their own laptops, usually maybe a bit better quality. Kids who come from underprivileged backgrounds rely on laptops issued by the the system. Those laptops, the ones issued by the system, are the ones that track and collect a lot of this data. For example, one of the algorithms that runs on those laptops is an algorithm that's meant to track behaviors that might make you a security risk or might make you... uh, you know, at risk of harming yourself. And while that's great, you know, we want the tools to identify, proactively identify kids who might harm themselves. If those algorithms are only running on the kid on the laptops of, of the kids who have to use this district issued laptops, you can see the privacy consideration or the privacy worries there. We're only collecting information and potentially infringing, if not violating, the privacy of those children who have to rely on those laptops. So that's just a tiny example. The other obvious example is if we, you know, personalized learning systems, uh, adaptive learning systems often are going to cost something. And so there might be only more readily available to children who already can afford probably private human tutors and private SAT prep tutors and so on. So it might just exacerbate that problem.
0: Dr. Yovana Davidovich, there's a lot to talk about with artificial intelligence on a lot of vectors, but especially with education. Thanks for joining us on Radio Stockdale.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.